something to note. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. On the morning of June 20th, 1900, a group of men carried a palanquin down a street in Beijing. Inside sat Baron Clemens von Kettela, the German minister to China. He tugged at his mustache, silently rehearsing his argument. He was on his way to see the Zhongli Yamen, the government organization in charge of foreign policy, to settle the matter of the boxers. For the last three weeks, the secret society had run rampant over northern China, killing any foreigners and Chinese Christians they came across. Von Ketela, his retinue, and most of the other foreign ministers had managed to find safety within the city walls. But no one had expected the conflict to continue this long. The Chinese army had been too slow to act, and the boxers had gained an unshakable foothold. And now, instead of offering the ministers safety, the Dowager Empress of China had commanded them to flee the city. She decreed they must leave, but they would have no help from her. Very well, von Ketela would demand the Songli Yamen aid them in their escape. Suddenly, von Ketela's palanquin dropped to the ground. He rapped on the wooden side and demanded to know what was going on. Why had they stopped? The answer came in the form of commotion, running footsteps, men shouting, the click of a hammer being cocked. Von Ketela opened the door, only to find a pistol in his face. A red sash decorated it. Boxer red. Before Von Ketela could protest. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first episode on the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. At the dawn of the 20th century, the secret military group staged a revolution in Imperial China. The conflict is more commonly known as the Boxer Rebellion. This week, we'll trace the origin of the Boxers. We'll examine the political landscape in China and how encroaching Westernization rallied the secret society to revolution. Next week, we'll examine the Boxer Uprising's outcome and discover how the conflict permanently impacted the future of China. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When we study the annals of history, searching for the root of a conflict, it can be tempting to point to societal conditions created by humans, like a failed economy or insurmountable ideological differences. But there are often more elusive reasons for upheaval, matters that are entirely out of our control. Floods that wash away homes and villages, droughts that strangle crops on the vine, famines that decimate communities. These uncontrollable acts of nature are undeniable proof of the powerlessness of government. Even the wisest ruler with the strongest army is no match for the will of Mother Nature. And when people lose faith in their government, they can only look to themselves, to each other, to revolution. In 1900, the people of China banded together to change their country forever. But before we dive into that, we have to travel backward to understand the social and political elements that set the stage for the Boxer Rebellion. If China seems inscrutable to the West today, it's because we can't fathom the enormous breadth of its complex history. Kings have ruled the warring states of ancient China since the Bronze Age, but the nation wasn't unified under one all-powerful emperor until the Qin Dynasty took control in 221 BCE. Imperial rule under different dynasties continued for the next 2,000 years culminating in the Qing Dynasty from 1644 to 1912. After rebels overthrew the Qing Empire, the people established the Republic of China. Many factors led to the downfall of the Qing government and the cessation of imperial rule, but tantamount among them were the encroaching tendrils of westernization. Trade routes between the West and China were first established in antiquity through routes like the Silk and Spice routes, and they expanded from there. Initially, the balance of power seemed tipped toward the Chinese in these trades. Goods like tea, silk, and porcelain were extremely popular among Europeans. For a long time, the high number of exports bolstered the nation's economy, and British silver flooded into Chinese banks. But in the late 1700s, the balance shifted. One product changed the country's landscape, opium. By 1838, the British imported an estimated 1,400 tons of opium into China annually. The drug came from India, which was at the time still part of the British Empire. The East India Trading Company oversaw the cultivation of thousands of acres of poppy plants, using cheap peasant labor to process the seeds into narcotics. Before long, most of China was addicted to opium, including the ruling class. One Chinese official explained, people of all social strata, from government officials and members of the gentry to craftsmen, merchants, entertainers, servants, Buddhist monks and nuns, and Taoist priests, took up the habit and openly bought and equipped themselves with smoking instruments. Even in the center of our dynasty, the nation's capital and its surrounding areas, some of the inhabitants have also been contaminated by this dreadful poison. In 1839, 
Qing Emperor Dao Guang took action, trying to halt the drug trade entirely. He banned the sale of opium and its smoking equipment. Under the order of Dao Guang's imperial commissioner, Lin Zexu, Chinese officials confiscated massive quantities of the narcotic from the East India Company's warehouses and destroyed it all. Then they set up a blockade to keep out all future imports. It was like the Chinese version of the Boston Tea Party, the Poppy Tea Party. And much like the American version, the Brits didn't take this act of aggression lying down. In the months that followed, an all-out war erupted. Backed by the Royal Navy's superior firepower, British troops flooded China, desperate to retain their economic hold on the country. After a series of crushing defeats, the British forced the Chinese to surrender. The First Opium War ended in August 1842. As part of their victory, the British made the Chinese sign the Treaty of Nanjing, a devastating blow to the empire. The agreement demanded that China pay $21 million in reparations for the conflict. It also guaranteed that Britain had unfettered access to five trading ports along China's coast. And perhaps most significantly, China agreed to forfeit the island of Hong Kong to British rule. If the Western powers had been knocking at Chinese threshold for centuries, then the Treaty of Nanjing was their battering ram, breaking the door off its hinges entirely. Foreign diplomats, businessmen, and other opportunists quickly set up shop in the East. Germans, Italians, Americans, Japanese, and Russians all flooded into the newly opened country. And the weakened empire only grew more fragile. Subsequent military conflicts of the 1800s, like the Second Opium War, the Taiping Rebellion, and the First Sino-Japanese War, further plundered the nation and limited the Qing dynasty's rule. What remained by the late 19th century was a depressed economy, a demoralized national identity, and a corrupt and ineffective government. In other words, the perfect breeding ground for rebellion. The people just needed a spark. And then came the flood. Torrential rains in 1898 caused the Yellow River to overflow its banks. The disaster flooded thousands of square miles in northern China and reportedly left two million Chinese homeless. In some waterlogged villages of Shandong, nine out of ten homes were abandoned and left deserted. Then the weather changed course. Droughts quickly followed the floods. Crops failed. Famine set in. Millions of Chinese starved to death. Rancor set in among the citizens. With no fields to plow, no crops to tend, the people were ready to revolt. British Minister Claude MacDonald reasoned, a few days of heavy rainfall would do more to restore tranquility than any measures which either the Chinese government or foreign governments could take. But when the rain didn't come, the people turned to a new group to lead them. And the boxers welcomed their frustrated neighbors to the cause with open arms. Boxer is a Western term. Their Chinese name, Yi Ho Xuan, translates roughly to the righteous and harmonious fists. The nickname Boxer comes from Westerners who observed their martial arts traditions. For the sake of clarity, we're going to refer to the group as the Boxers moving forward. The Boxers and other militant secret societies like them existed in some form or another for most of the 1800s. They were associated with other groups like the White Lotus Society, the Big Sword Society, the Eight Diagram Sect, 
and the Red Fist Society. These organizations were all linked by a few common ideological principles, but most importantly, they were all staunchly anti-foreigner. They saw the West as the source of all their troubles, the poor economy, the government corruption, and they were prepared to take violent action to rid the country of what they called invaders. On November 1, 1897, a violent anti-Western attack called the Julia Incident occurred. Shortly before midnight, a small armed band ambushed a trio of German Catholic missionaries. Though it's not conclusive, there's been some evidence that the attack was carried out by the Big Sword Society. Two of the priests, Richard Henle and Franz Sava Nice, were visiting their friend Georg Stenz, who was also a priest, at his residence when they were all ambushed. According to Stenz, the three priests had just said their final mass of the evening and gone to bed when they were stormed. Two of the priests, Richard Henle and Nice, were shot and stabbed numerous times. They died almost immediately. Stenz had stayed in a porter's room that night. Henle and Nice were his guests, so he offered them his usual space in the nicer quarters. His act of kindness saved his life. The armed men searched the mission for Stenz, but weren't able to find him. A group of local Chinese Christians, hearing the turmoil, came to Stenz's aid and ran the attackers off. There's no definitive proof as to what caused the attack, but it's been suggested by Stenz that if the big swords were responsible for the attack, it was because they were angry with the Catholics for converting the wealthiest locals to their religion. Now they paid their tithes to the church instead of the local Buddhist monastery, and the big swords, many of them poor peasants, relied on the meals the temple provided to the community. So through their evangelism, the Catholics had taken food from their mouths. The incident is a tidy encapsulation of the general ills the Chinese felt about westernization throughout the 1800s. In this case, the big swords may have felt angry that a new religion had denied them their opportunity for a square meal. But others felt pushed out of their trades when European imports replaced their goods or put them out of a job when European technology made them redundant. And the government's response to the Julia incident was also prototypical. When the Germans heard about their slaughtered priests, they demanded reparations. And the Chinese government acceded. They paid the Germans 3,000 pieces of silver and funded the construction of three Catholic churches in the area. And when the other foreign governments, the British, the Russians, the French, and the Japanese, heard about the Julia incident and its aftermath, they demanded their own piece of the pie. They wanted their own settlements in China, namely in the form of naval bases, and China agreed. Time and again, China's poorest felt the threat of the foreigners. And time and again, the government validated those fears, standing with the Western powers instead of their own people. And eventually, the people had enough. Coming up, the boxers prepare for war. Listeners, here's a new show I can't wait for you to check out. When it comes to love, every story is unique. Some play out like fairy tales, seemingly meant to be. Others defy the odds to achieve happily ever after. In Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast, you'll discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Every Tuesday, Our Love Story celebrates the ups, downs, and pivotal moments that turn complete strangers into perfect pairs. 
Each episode offers an intimate glimpse inside a real-life romance, with couples recounting the highlights and hardships that define their love. Whether it's a chance encounter, a former friendship, or even a former enemy, our love story proves that love can begin and blossom in the most unexpected ways. Follow Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. The Iho Shuan, nicknamed the Boxers, existed in some form or another as early as 1808. We say in some form because these groups all had different names and sprang up in various areas of China. But they were all military secret societies bound by a central ideology and martial arts style. There are few surviving records from the boxers themselves about their practices. However, we do know that the rank and file members were wide-ranging. While some were from the higher end of the social strata, a significant amount were from the poorest and lowest end. Groups like teenagers who saw no future for themselves in the current system, or landless peasants hungry for change. This also meant that some were of the most uneducated citizens. Here are a few other things that we do know. Though they formed different small groups with some variations in their fighting styles, anyone that identified themselves as a boxer did so by wearing the color red. This could be a red headscarf or turban, or an entire outfit, shirt, pants, and sash, dyed red. The boxers also tended to be young. The oldest in the group were usually in their 30s. The boxers based their idea of seniority solely on age. If they considered some members teachers, it wasn't due to their skill, but simply because they were old enough to have knowledge to pass down. Even still, some sects of boxers insisted that there were no instructors, only gods who attach themselves to the boys' bodies, after which the latter are able to do the boxing exercises. There were also separate organizations of female boxers. They were known as the Lanterns. They were color-coded by age, with Red Lanterns being the youngest. The boxers regarded the Red Lanterns as exceptionally powerful. They believed these women had the ability to fly and could cause a foreigner's home to burst into flames just by looking at it. While the latter is hard to imagine, the former may have a kernel of truth to the myth. Red Lanterns were skilled climbers, so while they couldn't fly, they were able to scale walls and climb trees with such dexterity, it gave the impression that they could. One legend of a Red Lantern claimed that not only was she impervious to man-made weapons, but that when she mounted a bench, it turned into a horse. When she straddled a piece of rope, it turned into a dragon. And when she sat on a mat, it turned into a cloud on which she could fly. The prowess of the Red Lanterns was so fearsome that male boxers bowed to them when they passed on the streets. And in some depictions of boxer battles, it's actually the Red Lanterns that magically protect the men from harm. They use charms and incantations to surround the boxers with an invisible shield, repelling bullets and spears. 
But it wasn't just the Red Lanterns who could miraculously deflect enemy weapons. Most boxers believed they could summon this divine protection for themselves. They referred to this practice as spirit boxing. Once a boxer connected with a spirit, they were impervious to harm. They could even deflect foreign bullets. According to a few accounts, before a battle, boxers would read an incantation that summoned the phantoms of the dead. They would then invite these ancestors or great warriors into their bodies and use their spiritual strength to fight off foreign invaders. In doing this, they called upon the past souls of China to protect its future. According to one account, the assembled boxers invoked their spiritual teachers by writing their own names, home villages, and how many of them were present in the group on red slips of paper. Then they knelt down, burned incense, and requested their spiritual leaders to attach their bodies to them. They summoned figures like Soon Bin, a renowned military strategist from the 4th century BCE. Soon Bin was framed for treason by one of his rivals, and as punishment, he had his legs cut off at the knee. Even after his enemies effectively crippled him, he became the chief military advisor to the Qi armies. Who better for a boxer to channel when he went to war? They also called on Liu Bei, a warlord from the 3rd century BCE. He was born into poverty and forced to sell shoes and straw mats to support his family. Eventually, he reigned as emperor of the Shu Han dynasty, one of the three kingdoms. For poor boxer boys, he was an ideal spiritual guide. As the account details, quote, We requested the gods to attach themselves to our bodies. When they had done so, we became spirit boxers, after which we were invulnerable to swords and spears. Our courage was enhanced, and in fighting, we were unafraid to die and dared to charge straight ahead. The boxers had to practice calling upon the spirits and opening the door for possession before they faced battle. And it seems like different boxer groups established this link in different ways. Instead of slips of red paper, some chapters used a verbal incantation. A visiting Japanese national detailed how a teacher lined up a group of young boxers, then tugged sharply on their right earlobes. He had them repeat three times. I beseech the Holy Mother of the Buddha of immeasurable light and life. After the boys repeated the words, they all fell to the ground. Then they laid still as if dead, scarcely even breathing. Until suddenly, they all rose up and began to spar. The account described them in a trance, as if they were drunk or in a dream state. When the instructor clapped each boy in the shoulder and called him by name, he broke the spell. Afterward, the children seemed to have no memory of the fight. The Japanese national wrote, It's as if they were completely different people from the ones fighting a few moments earlier. What these accounts describe sounds like a religious experience. It's similar to a practice of spiritual dissociation called channeling. Researchers Tali Stolovi, Rahel Levizel, and Zvi Isakovitz define channeling as a phenomenon in which people describe themselves as receiving messages from another personality or dimension of reality. It's a disruption in the usually integrated functions of consciousness, memory, identity, or perception. Channeling is commonly used in meditation or prayer because in that state, a practitioner may feel closer to God or enlightenment. But in the case of the boxers, that space of heightened spirituality was used to embolden violence. One boxer told his troops as they charged into a fight, 
when you've reached the field of battle, as soon as the gods have entered your bodies, you'll go up to heaven, and the devils, the foreigners, will have no way to attack you. To an outside observer, the boxers were clearly affected by the practice. One wrote, In some instances, holding a sword, they dance about wildly, and pedestrians don't have time to get out of the way. Coming or going, they're unaware of what they're doing. Confused, disoriented, they don't seem like normal people. Think how that spiritually charged state might encourage a fighter. During the battle, they felt superhuman, and afterward they had no fear or PTSD to contend with. If they remembered anything from the experience, it was only that they felt powerful. Now imagine that you're a poor, starving peasant who is angry with the condition of the world and looking for retribution. If someone offered you that kind of fighting prowess, wouldn't you jump at the chance? Especially if you had a massive score to settle. As we discussed earlier, a perfect storm of factors at the turn of the 20th century gave the boxers a wide net to recruit members. But perhaps the most compelling among them was the series of floods, droughts, and famines that plagued northern China throughout the 1890s. To many Chinese, these were acts of the divine, and they thought that if a god was punishing them this way, they must have done something to deserve it, which meant they must atone for their sins by any means necessary. Based on their practice of spirit boxing, members of the society were obviously prone to spiritual superstition. And as they looked at the world around them, trying to determine what they'd done to affront their deities, they found a pretty obvious answer. Thanks to the actions of the Qing-led government, not only was China overrun with foreign ambassadors, businessmen, and engineers, but also Christian evangelists. The Julia incident that we mentioned involved Catholic missionaries from Germany, but more came from many nations and all kinds of denominations. All over China, Catholics, Jesuits, and Protestants clamored to save Chinese souls. By the late 1800s, Christianity had managed to carve out a sizable stronghold in the country. Part of their success came from the public services they offered. They not only built churches, but clinics, schools, and orphanages as well. When famine struck, the Christians provided meals to those willing to convert. When parents abandoned children, the Christians offered them a home, where missionaries would raise them according to biblical scripture. If the Western powers' political arms had plundered the Chinese economy, then their religious arms had stolen their souls. And this, above all else, had angered the gods most grievously. To signify what they thought of them, the boxers even referred to the missionaries as Yang Guiza, meaning foreign devils, or more literally, foreign ghosts. One piece of boxer propaganda read, The Christians don't believe in the gods or the Buddha, and they neglect their ancestors. Their men are improper, and their women immoral. The heaven won't rain, and the earth is scorched. And all because of the foreign devils, the skies are blocked. So in the summer of 1900, as the drought continued and the crops failed, the boxers knew they had to take action. They had to make amends to the gods. They would show the Christian invaders the righteous fury of their fists. Coming up, the boxers revolt. Now back to the story. 
Throughout 1898 and 1899, Chinese Christians were already facing persecution from groups scattered about the country. But as the drought wore on in China, the boxers' numbers swelled into the thousands, as did their fury. The population's forced idleness aided the boxers in their recruitment. As one account declared, 1900 was a drought year and there was nothing to do. So we began to practice the spirit boxing. In addition to idleness, the boxers were popular with Chinese royalty. In early 1900, the Dowager Empress Sashi issued a series of decrees that favored the boxers. She protected them from arrest after they attacked foreign missionaries. She tacitly approved their mission to rid China of the scourge of foreign influence. In her mind, it was necessary. Though the imperial ruling class of China lived in luxury, impervious to the whims of nature, they still chafed at the yoke of the Westerners, just as much as the peasant class did. Following the Opium Wars, the Western powers established foreign legations in Beijing, the capital city. They had a permanent ear with the government and were perpetually trying to introduce modern Western reforms. And the Dowager Empress had just about enough of their meddling. Sashi was not actually married to the former emperor, as her title would suggest. She was his favorite concubine. But thanks to her skillful political maneuvering, her son found his way to the throne in 1861. But it was Sashi who truly called the shots, just as she had when she was the emperor's concubine. After her son's death, she again pulled the strings with deft hands, ensuring that her nephew would succeed her son in 1875 and allowing the actual job of ruling to remain in her control. But as skilled as Sushi was at manipulating the imperial court, she'd lived a sheltered life in the Forbidden City. She didn't have much experience with the West. And as they pressed for more influence and more modernization, she stumbled in her response. Over time, as China lost war after war, she was forced to give more ground. But now, in the boxers, she had found an unexpected card to play. They were her own citizens. Who could blame her for siding with them over foreigners? When the boxers started attacking churches in northern China, terrorizing Christians, Sashi did little to intervene. As the boxers' destruction traveled further south, and they started tearing up railroad lines and cutting telegraph wires, Sashi demurred. Her government assured the foreigners that the boxers were not worth a smile. But by the end of May 1900, the boxers were nearly upon the capital city. The Western diplomats in Beijing grew anxious. They couldn't understand why the Chinese were dragging their feet in summoning an army. But even then, the diplomats feared the army wouldn't be enough. They'd seen with their own eyes how poorly trained the soldiers were. Perhaps they would be beaten by the boxers and their divine fighting prowess. What then? The foreigners decided to take matters into their own hands. On May 28th, they received permission from their respective governments to summon guard forces to Beijing. They could only draw from the nearby legation guards, including naval vessels stationed off the coast of China. But it was better than nothing. On May 31st, approximately 450 men arrived in Beijing, representing Austria, France, Germany, Great Britain, Italy, Japan, Russia, and the United States. They brought what firepower they had, a rifle for each man, a few hundred rounds of ammunition, and three machine guns. 
Apparently, Russian forces had meant to bring additional heavy artillery weapons, but those gun crates had been accidentally left behind at the train platform at the outset of the trip. Apparently, this kind of oversight wasn't uncommon among the Russian army. Without these weapons, the foreign guards barely had the equipment to handle the oncoming boxers. By June 5th, Christian refugees had flooded Beijing. When they heard about the foreign troops, they came to the city for protection. But this only made the foreign ambassadors feel more uneasy. They had only 450 soldiers to protect them. And the more Christians swarmed the area, the more likely the boxers would strike. Four days later, the first of the boxers arrived in Beijing. A rebel regiment known as the Fighting Braves started attacking foreign professors at the Beijing University. Frightened, the ambassadors called for more reinforcements. Around 2,100 foreign reserve forces left the port of Tianjin and headed south for Beijing. It was an 80-mile journey, not too far. The ambassadors felt placated, knowing that help was on the way. But while they waited for their reinforcements to arrive, tensions in the city escalated. Boxers attacked a Japanese chancellor in the streets. Seeing him as an embodiment of foreign oppression, the rebels seized the man from his palanquin, beat him to death, and dismembered his body. According to some rumors, they cut out his heart and sent the lump of bloody flesh back to the Japanese. In addition to this gruesome slaying, the boxers made it known around Beijing that the foreigners had until June 19th to flee the city. Anyone remaining on that date would be exterminated. And the day ended with even more ominous news. The reserves hadn't arrived. Throughout the northern countryside, the boxers had torn up the railroad tracks. They were symbols of Western meddling, an attempt to carve up the nation for their own use. So they had to go. Every few miles, the reserve units had to stop and repair the rails. A journey that should have been a matter of hours was now delayed indefinitely. And while soldiers were tending to the track, it left the entire contingent vulnerable, open to attack. They warded off several different raiding parties of boxers, clad in their customary red. In their records of the attacks, the soldiers recounted how the boxers fought with an unexpected ferocity. One man wrote, They work themselves into an extreme state of hypnotism and certainly do not, for the moment, feel body wounds. We all have learnt that they take a tremendous lot of killing, and I myself put four man-stopping revolver bullets into one man before he dropped. Righteous anger and the fighting spirits of dead warriors fueled the boxers. Day after day, they continued their raids as the train of foreign reinforcements inched along the damaged tracks. During one stoppage, the train came to rest next to a wheat field. The stalks, though brown, dried, and brittle, had grown tall. They provided cover to nearly 100 boxers as they ambushed the rear of the train. The only thing that saved the soldiers was a British Maxim machine gun mounted to the caboose. If the boxers had taken another approach when attacking the locomotive, they would have been out of range of the gun's firepower. Without the promised reinforcements, the situation in Beijing deteriorated. Thousands of boxers roamed the streets, setting buildings on fire and cutting down any foreigners and Christians in their paths. There was so much smoke in the air from the destruction, it cast a dark pall on the city. For days, chaos reigned. Finally, the morning of June 19th dawned. 
the promised expulsion day for the foreigners. Reinforcements were still miles from the city, the 450-man guard was dwindling, and the Chinese army was still conspicuously absent. And then a distressing escalation. All the foreign ministers from the Western powers received an identical letter at precisely the same time. It was an imperial decree from the emperor. All of the recipients, their staff, and their guards had been ordered to leave the city. They had 24 hours to pack up their houses and depart. There was undoubtedly an implied or else, though there were no details on what the consequences might be for failing to comply. But the decree didn't offer any suggestions on how the foreigners could possibly leave Beijing in its current state of unrest. They couldn't make it past their courtyards, let alone through the city and out the gates. The boxers would swarm them immediately. They sent word to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. Surely he would ensure their safe passage. But the minister didn't respond, and his silence sent a clear message. The Dowager Empress had made her choice. She was siding with the Boxers. She was ready to reclaim China from the West, even if it meant slaughtering the foreigners in the streets. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back next week with part two of The Righteous and Harmonious Fists. We'll discover the outcome of the Boxer Rebellion and try to understand how it shaped the future of China. For more information on the Boxer Rebellion, amongst the many sources we used, we found History in Three Keys, The Boxers as Event, Experience, and Myth by Paul A. Cohen, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Abigail Cannon, with writing assistance by Ali Wicker, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Don't forget to check out Our Love Story, the newest Spotify original from Parcast. Every Tuesday, discover the many pathways to love, as told by the actual couples who found them. Listen to Our Love Story free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.